In this season of Inspire and Innovate, a podcast for educators, we take on the faculty-admin divide. I'm going to be honest. When I was a full-time faculty member in middle school, high school, higher ed, I kind of saw administrators as the bad guys. And to be fair, one of the dudes I worked for, the one that screamed at me when I was eight months pregnant because I had the audacity to allow my ninth graders to line up to leave right before the bell rang, had an affair with another English teacher, and wasn't honestly that nice a dude. But even the ones really great administrator I had my first year of teaching, shout out to Julie Bowers, totally, utterly terrified me. How could these school leaders possibly know what was best for my classroom? And anyway, power always corrupts, even those with the best of intentions. Well, now I am an evil administrator and it is easy to lose touch of what's going on in the classroom. That's why my favorite people to talk to are faculty, still the smartest, most in-touch people in the room any time of day. But guess what? The whole us versus them vibe is absurd. Because y'all, as I remind my three kids during road trips or when we're all attempting to clean the house, same team, same goals. I wish there were clear-cut villains and good guys in this life, but the longer I live, the clearer it becomes. We're all doing the best with the knowledge and skills and experiences and energy that we have. And do we all make mistakes too? You betcha. That's why I dedicate this podcast season to a proverbial clearing of the air, saying what needs to be said, because the most vicious of cycles is closing the door to your echo chamber, rolling your eyes, and making comments to your buddies about those faculty or those admin. So this season, we're going to look each other in the eye, the us and the them, whichever us or them you are, and we are going to share stories and words that reflect our truths and lived realities on a variety of themes that matter to this pursuit that we share, educating youth. Well, this is Mr. Julius, your host today of the Inspire and Innovate podcast, coming to you from currently Blustery, Jackson, Mississippi, and St. Andrew's Episcopal School. I'm here with guests, Mr. Clay Elliott, head of middle school, and Jen Witt, our fearless dean of students, to talk about that juicy perennial topic of school discipline, how we do it, where we see it heading in the future, and what best and or innovative practices institutions like ours might consider into infinity and beyond. I figured I would begin the podcast episode with a little context and frame because while none of us have all the answers, I think that uh, school discipline is an enduring, a challenging, it's an, uh, an essential topic that all of us as educators and administrators are tasked with. How do we create systems that manifest tangible consequences while also accounting for social emotional health of our students? Um, discipline's tough and societally we've been working as institutions of learning for decades, centuries even, to figure out how to do it best and it seems that the more we wrestle with discipline and how to correct student behavior and enact policies that set clear effective boundaries for kids and develop better practices to factor in those concerns like social emotional health, we realize that older models have failed many of the kids that we care so passionately about. For example, now we know that statistically speaking, detention, suspensions, expulsions, um, traditional consequences for student misbehavior all really disproportionately affect students of color uh, and students from low socioeconomic status. So how would we, um, as St. Andrews, uh, middle and upper 
characterize our discipline model? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think our model is um, the goal of a good discipline model is to be based around the mission of your school, and and our model is based on uh, a sense of restorative justice. But that that phrase, I think, um, even more, it's really about responding um, and natural consequences. Working with individual students in the moment. Um, helping them to see and understand what happened and how to make a different choice next time. Uh, and so it's it's an educational model. Um, and I think a, another big part of it is um, supporting students who might feel um, wronged or on the other end of that as well. Um, and so we, we want to create a, a community where we're growing, where students feel comfortable talking about things that are happening to them. Um, and I, I do feel like the best way to do that is through uh, a sense that, that we're in this together and we're going to talk about things and learn and grow from them. Um, and, and you just still you really need clear boundaries and um, responses, um, but they may not be the, the, the old-fashioned detention or something like that. They tend to be more um, individualized. I would say that with restorative justice, you rely heavily on education at the beginning because people don't often understand or know the repercussions of their actions or what they've said to somebody. So it is about building relationships and making sure that they're aware. It's much easier after you've gone through some training and some workshops and had some education on the topic and talked to different people and heard different voices of how what you've said could impact the greater community. Then the next time to have something that might be a little bit more of a traditional discipline method. So I think where people struggle is that you cannot be 100% restorative justice because schools still have to allow space for some suspensions or expulsion depending on the activity. But not to go there or start there, but to make sure that there is a graduated ladder that everybody understands and that after you know better and you've had the opportunity to do better, if you repeat it, then there are there's a pathway for that as well. I think that's I think that's really cool that you both sort of mentioned the educational piece of of discipline um, and the importance of like teaching kids the on the front end, the, the why of, of discipline and not just here's a corrective response to uh, a misdeed or, or behavior. Um, but maybe we could backtrack a little bit and just talk about RJ or restorative justice and what, you know, various definitions of restorative justice are, but perhaps more importantly, what, what our definition as an institution is of restorative justice. Cause I know that, you know, there's a lot of different understandings of the, of the word. Yeah, um, well, restorative justice is a practice that has a few, um, a lot of research behind it and some years of, of development. Um, I, I'll speak, generally it's the idea of um, providing justice but, and restoring the community. You can see the, those words in there. Um, and that the, the goal is to um, respond and enforce boundaries and then find a way for the, the offender to re-enter um, the community having learned from 
the experience. Um, because we find when when people are not able to re-enter the community in whatever way that might mean, whether it's feeling comfortable again in the classroom or not feeling that people are out to get them, when that doesn't happen, they're very they're much more likely to to do it again. Uh, they they so we want them to feel a part of it because the most powerful um, positive incentive for behavior for of any age is to feel part of something, and. Um, uh, Historically, systems that just punish end up creating an outsider sense for the person that's being punished. And then it does not, um, that, that lack of rebuilding that bridge keeps that person from re-engaging with the community and feeling sort of beholden to its norms and, and ideals. So um, for us, what it means is, you know, as we talked about, it means when a, when a student's making a mistake, understanding that you letting them know that you know it was a mistake um, and that you're working with them. It doesn't define them. They can grow and change. Um, teaching them how to handle themselves both to avoid but also how to handle themselves when they make a mistake and what do they do and what are their, what are their choices um, and how do they learn from it. Um, so we use a lot of um, workshops that Jen has put together that that are on a whole variety of topics. She must have 20 of them by now <laughs> um, that, that allow um, that students read about and research and understand. Um, they ask pretty complex questions. They give kids scenarios to work through so that when they do something, they're not just sort of losing time, but they're, they're using that time to learn and understand about it. Um, and that's an important part. And then there's also the, the restoring in, with the peer um, and trying to, to rebuild that. Um, and sometimes that's, that's sometimes the most challenging part um, is, um, you know, is helping everybody understand that restoration part. And I would say it's not so much like for the, that part being the challenging one of like forgiveness. Um, it's helping the person who said something that caused some harm understand that it might take a couple years. It might be something that can be forgotten and moved past in a couple of days and letting them understand and have support and see the counselors for what that looks like when you're you're struggling and you've done your work and you want to move on but they're not exactly ready for you yet and so providing um, that person with support and it helps remove labels of like you're a good kid or a bad kid or mm -hmm. and just there are better choices to make this time you didn't make the best choices. And I think the workshops, because I, I try to tailor make the workshops for each individual, um, and then they can see with the different scenarios, like these are better choices I could have made. And I think that when we as an institution are not looking at students and labeling them or publicly shaming them because everybody knows like, where the detention rooms and other schools are, where the suspension rooms are, where it's much more a part of just the fabric of the community so that it's not so public that students will open up and come to you with questions and also tell you things that you would never have known about before. So um, there's an upstander versus bystander one, and I helped a student like with language to use in that situation if they were ever in it again. And sort of, you know, we went about our way because our allotted time sessions were up. And then maybe a month later, they came back in my office and said, 
I tried this over the weekend. It didn't work. I need different language to help for next time. So that's what you're, the goal is really working towards making sure that people go out into the world and succeed by making the better choices in that moment. So like, I, you know, sort of to sum up, maybe, you know, as a, like a simple dichotomy, traditional sort of punitive discipline is less about teaching a kid the better choice to make in the same context and more about, you know, punishing them for the deed and restorative justice is more about, hey, here's, let's talk about, right? Not telling the kid what went wrong so much as talking it out, understanding what went wrong and helping them understand what went wrong. And then um, sort of leading them to uh, exposure of other choices that they could have made in a, in a, in a similar situation. Mm-hmm. Cool. There's always, at the end of every workshop, there's always a reflection piece. And one of the questions in the reflection piece is, how can we help you if you were to run into this situation and where do you think you would struggle most with so that we can have the resources ready to go? Clay, you mentioned, you know, obviously I'm a teacher, so I come at this from that uh, lens. And you mentioned recently in a faculty meeting that uh, across index schools, like, like St. Andrews, uh, we're feeling, uh, or teachers are feeling as though, uh, the shift to restorative justice has made, uh, teachers feel like they don't have recourse when they're trying to discipline, or perhaps they're like out of the loop maybe. Um, and one thing I think is important to discuss is how we educate faculty, uh, on how to effectively implement restorative justice practices in their own rooms. And then like, you know, what does that look like tangibly? Like, how do we teach teachers, practically speaking, on how to best use restorative justice in their classes? Yeah, I, I think that's a huge um, part of it, and it's something that we certainly need to continue to do here, and it's a big challenge. And it's also one that's that ranges um, for individual teachers. I think one of the things you discover as you make this shift is that there were teachers doing this all along. Absolutely, and quite a few of them. You know, um, there are many teachers who never, when even when you have detention systems, never give it attention, and they handle everything this way. They talk to kids when there's a problem. They, you know, and and so um, what you what you what this sort of shift uncovers is that there are very some people very comfortable operating in that milieu, and then there's others for whom it's a big change. It's a big shift away from what they're they're used to um and so it 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 can be a real challenge and also i think the individualization piece of it puts a lot of you know straightforwardly it puts a lot of stress for teachers and and trying to think about it when you're busy when you're frustrated um having one thing that's easy to reach for um is comforting i guess um is easier um and um and it's more immediate um, and so I think, I do think the training is really important. Um, and it's something that, you know, I think we're going to spend more time again next fall with, um, as we get ready for the school year, because I, I do think, and I, and I think also, uh, I mean, ultimately a really well run, um, where we would like to get to, it's very teacher centered, you know, the teachers, it's their room and it's their environment. And the point is to restore the child and their relationship with the teacher. Um, 
but it's very challenging to to shift from and and people talk about it um you know in the research it's like four years to sort of figure out how you're doing it and then it's another like four years to really shift the whole culture um and so that you know they usually talk about five to ten years total to make the change and um in addition then you add in changes in an the administration or changes in how it's functioning and it can feel even and bumpier. Um, I think also one of the challenges is, is figuring out the, it's not a one size, like detention, suspension, expulsion is sort of one size fits all for every school and this is not. So we can't just take a restorative justice system that another school has and put it into our school and expect it to run because they have different people and they run it differently. Um, and so some of the process, the shifting is figuring out what's right and how it looks here and, and who needs what support. Um, so it's not an easy, it's not an easy process. Um, I, I, you know, and I, and I think we want to make sure we support teachers and do some more development. Um, and also maybe figure out, um, how to, to, to continue that shift and give more teacher, teachers more voice in the structure of it. Um, you know, I think that's um, important. Uh, when, uh, you know, I've been a, a, when I pushed a school through this in previous, we actually had a teacher committee design the shift and also research it. Um, and I don't know all the details because it happened before I came here, but I'm not sure that that is exactly how the shift happened here. But I think that's, I think we can sort of recreate that to some degree um, here as we continue to move forward. Jen, how does that look? coming from you know the south right like i'm sure that all of us can remember historically our experiences with older forms of discipline i remember the paddle um, i know that we have moved well beyond that uh, thank god but you know i think there's an, an understanding perhaps misguided uh, in the culture that we live in in the south that you know your mom and dad come down hard and your school's gonna come down equally as hard. Uh, and in a system that doesn't have the sort of immediate tangible consequence, right or wrong of, you know, detention, expulsion, suspension, what do we do? Well, I think I too was paddled on an almost weekly basis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> surprise. <laughs> <laughs> the dean was probably the most disciplined child. Um, I would say that other states in the South, like Florida, Louisiana, and Texas, they have laws um, starting in 2009 for public schools for using restorative justice. And that studies have shown, and there was recently one out of California, that showed that students who are more engaged in a restorative justice practice tend to have higher grades. So it's not just about eliminating the disparity, disparity between classes and races, but it is also for the betterment of the student. And I think mm -hmm. when we were growing up, the focus was more on you were to sit still, be quiet, the teacher was to tell you everything. And then there was that shift in education where the teacher was the facilitator of the material and you were working together. And as we move through what the repercussions of that model look like on our students today with the shift, because now these are parents who grew up in this model of the teacher works with us and facilitates us and we're in charge of our own learning and our own destiny. 
the discipline is what is lagging behind and coming next. And just recognizing that it's messy and it takes time and everybody will eventually get there. But when you're in the moment, you don't always realize that and you don't know where it's coming. And that takes a leap of faith to be able to say, like, it's it's going to be okay in a few years and we're going to do some things that work well and mm-hmm. some things mm-hmm. that we will never try again. But just like, take situations and and really look at them honestly and say, like, this is where I made a mistake and this is what I should have done differently. And I think um, being open and willing to talk about that. So yeah. there was something that happened this year where – it never occurred to me to call the other set of parents of the person that was harmed. And that was just not something even I was used to with restorative discipline. I was just more used to the other side of it. And so this year I've really worked on incorporating the other side, the person who was wronged or the teacher who was wronged and really um, changing some of the ways that I approach it. And Mm -hmm. I think just being able to talk about things like that, like this is a better system now, but I wouldn't have known that without having made the mistake. I feel like really these conversations are more about, about like the conversation we're having and the conversations that you've been talking about are conversations about the need for conversation, which I know sounds a little meta, but I feel like, um, the beauty of RJ is how communicative and vulnerable it is. And that's hard. Like there's real, like what you're, what you're alluding to in these, in these examples that you just highlighted is like the possibility of failure. Uh, and like, maybe it doesn't exactly work the first time or the second time or the third time or ever. Uh, but it's like that, that sort of noble and altruistic pursuit of like, I need to do this. Um, in order for, you know, restoration to happen? I think the first time you can do circles, teachers can do circles, which is one of the, um, people say is the drawback of restorative justice, is those circles take a lot of time. And some schools do it very formally and they follow this 30 minute thing. Some are less formal. You just have to find your groove. But when you do that, you are turning over control. So if you have a student who is always on their laptop in class when they're not supposed to, and you know what you want the punishment to be, or you know how you want to handle it. And the first time a teacher sits in one of those circles and it's entirely up to the student to decide how he or she is not going or they are not going to right. handle the situation and how they're going to make it better. And the teacher sort of has to let go and then trust in that, which is why we build in a two-week, you can try it for two weeks. We decide that success is in 100%, but they ha- they come up with their version of success. So success might be, for some students, six out of 10 times, or some students, eight out of 10 times. And then they track and monitor it. And then when they come back in in two weeks, we review it. So we do always have a safeguard built in. Um, This is one of those things where restorative justice um, kind of is counterintuitive. But if they've reached three times or they haven't done it within the first week, obviously this plan is not going to work. And then you have like an emergency second second Mm -hmm. session. But if... If they make it the two weeks, we meet and then everybody talks together. And then one that was done recently, the student was like, well, now that I don't have my laptop on, I found that I can't stop talking to my friends. And so then we did a second circle and then now they have a doodle pad. So they doodle 
to like, because, you know, you will find a byproduct problem sometimes. It's like pulling a thread. Well, and I think, you know, it is it is hard and tiring, but empathy is hard. And, I you know, and that's one of the things when I was in the past, when I was looking at this process, I, I always, there was a descript, uh, a situation I like to talk about. There was a boy, sort of brash, typical boy, um, seemed very full of himself. And we had um, only like white socks or maybe white and black or something like that socks. And he wore red and teacher got frustrated. This boy's wearing red socks and we need to, you know, and then you sit down and you take a moment to listen. And the boy's parents had just gotten divorced. He woke up at dad's house. The only socks he had were red socks. And like he, parents are very sensitive. He didn't want to have to call mom and like, you know, and you know, and so when you, the reality is 90% of the time when you dig into what's happened with a kid, there's something like that behind mm-hmm. there. The, the yeah. kids don't sit there and scheme to cause great pain. It generally just happens um, through misguidance or not paying attention or even things beyond their control. And and so the, the, that empathetic moment is, is really important. Um, and I think we, we need to take time to do it um and i think it is additionally challenging right now as we're dealing with kids who are due to pandemic and other societal pressures they struggle with sort of what we would and some of it's a little bit what jen was talking about the change in excuse me teachers as as uh sages and teachers and facilitators the students don't uh, maintain classroom decorum in the same way that we want. And so when you're already frustrated because you're trying to manage them and then one of them does something wrong, like to have the energy to stop and be empathetic is challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. We've, we've sort of danced around and talked about, uh, this idea, but you know, part of restorative justice is in theory that it helps eliminate or ameliorate at least like the problem of, systemic racism in school punishment um, and also is more considerate of socioeconomic status trying to be at the very least um, in school discipline. Um, And I know that, you know, topics about critical race theory um, and race are contentious right now, but um, it, it does seem pretty beyond debate that students of color students from lower socioeconomic status, just based on the data, are disproportionately punished in previous models. My question, though, is, at least in my own research of restorative justice, is there, there isn't a whole lot of conclusive data on whether or not this addresses that problem fully, because we don't know. We, I mean, like you said, it takes a long time to prove whether or not a restorative practice will work in a, in a school district. Um, I know, like I said at the beginning of, of the podcast, we don't have all the answers. What convinces us as, as educators, administrators at St. Andrews that this is the best strategy or the better strategy than the previous model? And then, you know, what other things should we be looking for to make sure that St. Andrews and really all schools are being more mindful of the fact that, you know, our, our students of color, our minority students and, and students from different socioeconomic backgrounds are getting more punished? Um, that's a complex question. I'll do my best. I would say what convinces me that this is the right direction is our mission, that it's in line with our Episcopal values and what we 
believe in the way we want to treat people, the way we want adults to treat each other, um, and the way we want to to listen and before we judge. And so, and and broadly speaking, regardless of outcome these systems are more in line with our values. Um, now, um, additionally, there is some research that, that I don't know necessarily about research on, on outcomes in terms of who gets consequences and things, but there is research on outcomes in terms of perceived well-being um, and that it does have a positive effect of perceived well-being of students of color or other marginalized groups. So um, in that regard, that's true. Um, I don't know that, you know, perhaps it would be hard for us to test that because I don't have the, the control. Um, <laughs> I don't have a way to test that compared to what was before. But, um, you know, I do feel like we have a pretty pretty happy student body um, and tired teachers. And so I think figuring out the balance is, is important, but I, I do feel like it does have a positive effect. Do we have, do we have any of that data? Like as an I institution? think like for, I don't know for that data, but in regards to dress code, which is something specific, um, studies had shown that if you send a student to the office, they were um, disproportionately a minority or marginalized student. And then they had to call home and bring clothes to change into. Right, right, right. They were missing class time, which would impact sure. their grades as well. And now we have a system in the um, upper school where if you a teacher can report it, if they see somebody out of dress code, and then I send them an email at the end of the day, everybody gets the exact same email. They know that they've all seen a copy of what the email looks like to know it's not changed. The only thing that changes is if I say like your shorts or your top. And then it just says, please retire this from your wardrobe. Come talk to me if you have any questions about it. And yeah. that allows students to stay in class and then also gives them a chance to come and talk to me about what they they might think is in dress code versus not, you know, and we can have right, a conversation right. about that. So institutionally, though, I don't know, I'm turning that over to Clay if we have any evidence beforehand. I'm new. Clay, you know, <laughs> like, I'm just interested in this, and I know, I know this is, like, it's hard to say, but is there any data that suggests that, like, since we've moved more towards a responsive classroom discipline model slash restorative justice model that we've been less disciplinary of our minority students or that we've like seen a, de a decrease in punitive responses to, to kids who you know might be less I don't have that data I'd have okay. to go um, and I you know I mean the reality is that I do think restorative justice helps but I don't think it fixes this right. I mean the the one might hope it would help with um, this, but the reality is going to be that students from lower income families are going to come from different environments. This is an environment where they may feel like an outsider anyway, and um, um, and that just may that re alone, regardless of our discipline system, may lead to more friction for them. Mm -hmm. And so that's um, I don't feel like it can 
completely or anything can completely fix it, but I, I do feel like it helps, but I don't have any data. <laughs> well, my next question is from, from Mr. Lowe, who you heard in uh, a previous podcast episode. Um, and his question is about shame um, and how, you know, so much about discipline is tied up in the, the student being disciplined, feeling ashamed. And his question is, when is it appropriate to, as he says, go mask off, which is to say, um, are there moments when as an educator, we exercise that stern teacherly voice that says enough is enough, um, where we can do that without making a kid feel ashamed or embarrassed? Um, or is there like some place for shame in, in our discipline system? Like is, yeah, I know this is a this is a complex question. Like, I'm not trying to say we should make kids feel ashamed, but I feel like so much of learning from your mistakes is recognizing that oh man, I feel bad that I did that thing, and that involves some amount of shame. I I would say first of all, I would say using that firm teacherly voice is totally appropriate and should happen, and it should be about the behavior and not the child, and it should happen. In fact, I think. One of the challenges we have in today's whole world is that we don't do that. We don't correct the behavior consistently enough. Um, and so when a child misbehaves saying that's not appropriate, please stop it, but not you're not appropriate, right? Like, I mean, and I'm right, right. phrasing around it, but, um, and I think we can give more guidance on the wording so that we avoid that. But I, you know, for one thing, and, I think it's really important to establish that. And also, if a kid says something hurtful to another, the other kid needs to hear you stop that. Right. So that's a, there's two parts to that. So, um, you know, I do think, I think correction is even more important in a restorative justice system. And I think we have to be proactive and corrective and also proactive in setting clear boundaries, telling them ahead of time, these are the things I'm not going to accept and when you step over that, I'm going to call you on it. It's not personal, but you be ready for me to correct you. Um, and and I, think, I think we have to create that community and that will help us. I think the sense that restorative justice is about just like loosey-goosey, I think that is actually, I think that sense of the classroom or that losing predates restorative justice. I think that goes along with progressive teaching approaches. Yeah. and. The reality of progressive teaching approaches is that they are both better and harder and and they require more structure. And restorative justice is just the discipline response. But the reality is it's the, the creation of a classroom culture that matters more even than that. And I think that we've got to be, uh, yeah, we should not be afraid to, to correct a kid. And again, make it about the behavior and right, right. not the not the child themselves. I think I would replace the word shame with accountability and then making okay. sure that everybody is going to be accountable. And that is tiring, but that's where like, I know we're at the end of the year now, but next year starting with really strong in the first quarter, this is how you're going to be accountable very clearly like, on day one or two, like this is what's going to happen. And then consistently throughout the year, holding every student accountable when those actions occur. Sure. So if each classroom came up with their own norms and then followed their norms, where I think the system starts to break down is 
you might call, like, I might call you out, Dean, but I, I don't call Clay out. It mm-hmm. could be, like, you didn't see it when it happened. Right, right. There's so many other things that it could be, but just trying to be as consistent. Mm-hmm. And students will give you the benefit of the doubt if they think you are consistent. And so I think... So this includes, I mean, I, this includes some teacher accountability as well, like understanding that, like, we as educators make mistakes in our disciplining of students sometimes. Yeah, I would say, you know, and in that accountability, being aware of the pitfalls and just keeping an eye on it and knowing it. But, you know, one of the things that's funny because we talk about detentions and we talk about social economic or race, actually the biggest issue with detentions is gender. It is 95% boys in my experience, Not, not 65. I mean, it is, and it's not that boys are misbehaving more than girls is that the kind of misbehavior they do versus the kind of misbehavior girls do Mm -hmm. when girls kind of misbehavior has always been handled in like a restorative justice. Oh, we have to solve Mm -hmm. this social dilemma Mm -hmm. or we have to, whereas boys is rolling out of their chair and you can just get a detention and move on. Uh, and so I, I think that thinking about that in your classroom, even as we move to restorative and the accountability, well, a boy may be goofier and louder, but we also need to make sure that the girl who's whispering behind yeah. her hand yeah. is also held accountable that, um, and so that the, the boys, because very quickly the boys will say, well, it's just because they only notice the boys, right. you know? And so, right. um, and, and you can preempt that, you know, you can say like, yeah, I notice you because you're loud and she might've gotten away with a whisper. Yep. It's true. You know, and, and, and thinking about how you, how you construct that classroom is really mm-hmm. important. Yeah, that's really interesting. It, it reminds me of a couple of of books. I forget the uh, I forget the companion book for uh, for like uh, girl behavior, but Raising Cain yeah, um, is a is a great is a great book on 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 that subject. Well, y'all, thank you so much for chatting with us. I know these conversations are tough. I don't think that we have all the answers as evidenced <laughs> by our conversation, but. Um, I do think it's really important to talk about these things. And I feel like, you know, as you mentioned in our faculty meeting, really just based on the evidence and the research, like there's just a lot of conversation about how we're disciplining and how we can do it better. And um, I think it's just really important, even to the point of restorative justice, to have these conversations, to sit down and talk about it and recognize where we can be more accountable for what we're doing and uh, how we can do it better. So thank you all. Thank you, Clay. Thank you, Jen. I really appreciate y'all. Thank you.